0: Welcome to casual watch talk the podcast from the casual watch reviewer youtube channel join us as we talk everything watches from watch collecting the latest horology news and interviews if you're not already subscribed subscribe on your favorite podcast app let's dive into the show Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 46 of Casual Watch Talk. Today, Chris and I are joined by a very special guest, Dean from Little Switzerland, which is a watch store based in St. Thomas. So, in fact, it's a chain of watch stores. I think this is going to be a really interesting interview, especially with everything that's been going on in 2020. Dean's got extensive knowledge of multitude of brands and I'm certainly interested to find out which brands have been doing well during this time. So Dean, thank you so much for joining us.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Awesome. And this was uh we have to give a shout out to Todd who's a member of our Facebook group, joined us on multiple multiple episodes before. So Todd, thanks for uh, joining us and for making the introduction.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate it.
0: As always, we'd love to start the interviews with learning a bit about your background how did you get into watches have you always been into watches or
1: yeah you know it's funny if you would have told me 30 years ago that this is what i would have been doing i probably would have laughed laughed in your face (laughs) um i was raised in the new york area in jersey predominantly and uh, my wife is from the virgin islands and we came back here after getting married um and though i though my undergraduate was in music And I had worked in studios in New York. Uh, I came down here realizing that there wouldn't be anything like that industry here. And uh, so for the first few weeks, I just sort of got to know the island. And then uh, one day walked into a jewelry store and saw expensive price plugs and had done some sales while in college, you know, to help pay the bills, working at Eddie Bauer at night and things like that. And realized that uh, I enjoyed people. Uh, I enjoyed helping people. And so I just told them, you know, do you need anybody who's, who's halfway decent at what they do? And the manager kind of looked at me cockeyed and said, sure, oh, come on in. And it was actually off-season, which was an interesting thing. It was, it was May 26 of 94. And they were in the off-off season. And it's like the slowest month. And uh, they threw me into watches and i one by one read every book i could get my hands on of each brand at that time that we carried um, and then i uh, began reading up on other brands and my you know my my dad was in sales almost pretty much all of his life and he said you know you need to know your product like the best back like the back of your hand and then after that you need to know your competitors products but don't learn your competitors until you know yours. Yep. And so I took that sage advice and uh, read everything I could find. And, you know, it wasn't really any internet presence at that time for watches. There wasn't watch time wasn't even around yet. Um, I think international Wrist Watch might've been up and coming at that time, but there just wasn't a lot to get your hands on. Um, so I just read every, every, you know, master catalog that came with every brand we carried. After being in the business about three years, uh, I began. I, I took a little time off to do some work for our church, and then I came back uh, after about two and a half years. And at that time, then there was Watch Time, there were other magazines, HR, and all that. And I ended up coming back and selling again. And I ended up doing some journalism for the industry as well because I would read some of these things in in International Watch or Watch Time and I would read things and think that that's, that's not accurate. And, uh, you know, not trying to be arrogant or anything like that. Just realizing that I'd read enough stuff that I knew that some of these things were either just a misguided opinion or they just weren't really, weren't true or weren't accurate. And so I started doing some journalism myself, contributing to magazines like revolution, revolution USA, um, to HR, which was based in Florida. Um, and a few others and uh and, and that was that was kind of a fun sideline interestingly enough of course for me and my business uh ended up giving me quite a bit of credibility um among the, the people that i would meet and talk to and people would refer them people would refer others to me you know this guy's a journalist too you got to listen and I, I you know i tried to put, play it very humbly because i was like look the more i like anyone who's really into educating themselves, I knew that the, lear- the more that I learned, the more I realized how little I knew. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I still feel that way. And I, you know, I'll spend my first, uh, we just reopened our stores now after being closed for seven months and we only opened up a couple of our stores. We have 34 throughout the Caribbean and we've got maybe seven or eight stores open. Uh, so we're, you know, we're, we're being very careful, short hours, short days. You know, I usually spend my first hour, hour and a half, uh, reading anything I can get my hands on. Uh, I tend to frequent the Purist Pro. I tend to frequent Hodinkee, uh, Revolution out of Singapore. You know, and I'll and I'll read everything I can, um, just because there's always something new coming out. And you know, right now the industry is uh, in a challenging position because unless you have something super desirable. People are going to kind of wait, and 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 my what I've seen over the last few weeks that we've been open is that I have you know I stay in touch with all my clients. Uh, it used to be email, and now it's even now it's texting. And I've got people asking me for key models. Everybody wants the, sil- the silver Snoopy. You know, everybody wants a 5711. A lot of people want the new Master Calendar from Jaeger. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of really great product that has launched in the last four to six months and people could travel. You know, we have a lot of St. Thomas is the number one cruise port destination in the Caribbean. And so we have a lot of people who just come here as a shopping destination and they'll come to town, shop, tell the kids to stay at bay for now. Daddy's going to buy something and then they'll take them all to the beach after that, you know? And, um, but people haven't been able to travel. So what we're finding is that people got a lot of money in their pockets and they haven't spent it on a trip. And so they've got a little extra money. And so they're willing to stretch it. You know, if the budget was six to 10,000 now, they're thinking, man, I'll do 12 or 14 or 15, you know? So, um, and, and we'll, you know, we will mail to the States and all that, but, but we're seeing a lot of people looking for the same products. I mean, there are some, the run of the mill stuff is, um, pretty dead in the water
0: but i think the perception sort of chris and i have talked about this and we mainly i was getting this perception from watch pro at, and certainly looking at the share prices on the swiss stock exchange it seemed like the premium brands seem to be doing well but the the mid-range ones seem to be Really suffering um LVMH stuff, which is Tag Omega, was stumbling as well during the pandemic. It seemed like before the Silver Snoopy was released. I- I'm interested to get your perspective on that. Is that what you're seeing? Is the higher end stuff? Are, pe- are people really looking for value in a in a world that's quite turbulent?
1: Well, I think I think there are at least I don't want to limit myself, but there there are probably two main clients that I have and I have people who come who uh, know have no idea that St. Thomas is a shopping Mecca for people all over the world Um, because you know with some brands it's not about the price it's about the availability Mm -hmm. right oh sir I thought you wanted this you know what are you trying to ask me about what the best price is for I thought you said you wanted this 5711 you know (laughs) so there's there's, there's certain things that are about availability not about price Um, but I frequently, you know, when customers come to me, I assume that they think they know what they want, but can most often be persuaded to look into something else. You know, like I have guys who've been, you know, looking at advertisements or a friend of theirs has something, and maybe it's not a model, maybe it's a brand. You know, the Caribbean has done very, very well with Breitling. It's been, probably for the last 15 years, it's been the main, uh, the number one revenue brand. Hmm. Um, it's done really great. And I know other markets haven't done as well, but we've done really great with it. And um, uh, we, you know, we, we have seen recently a, quite a drop since the pandemic. Um, like they haven't really put out anything exciting. You know, George's Kern has taken over and he's still trying to, I think, sort of find his way through there. But, you know, when people come to me, I'll, they'll say, you know, I've heard this is the place to buy and I really want a nice watch. And and, and I'll, I'll ask him a couple of, you know, 20 question things like, you know, what's your budget? And, you know, do you want a strap or a bracelet? And, you know, what color do you want? Like, you know, a steel, like a white metal or a rose or yellow. You want plated or solid. And then and then one of the main questions I'll ask him is, all right, let me ask you this. Are you who are you buying this watch for? And let's say, well, I'm, I'm buying it for me. I say, are you sure? Because if you're buying it for your buddies and for bragging rights, Rolex and Patek. If you're buying it for yourself, <laughs> I have a lot of great brands yeah. to show you. You know, yeah. I love Carla. I love Carla Fuker. I love Jaeger. You know, there are a lot of really great brands out there. But I like to try and figure out who are they really buying this for? Because you know, the attitude for some people, you show them a brand they've, that they maybe they never heard of. And they're like, what, eight, gr- 10 grand? You know, for that, I'll buy a Rolex is the sort usually the response, you know, because they're thinking bragging rights. If I'm going to spend that kind of money, I want other people to know I spent that kind of money. So I try to uh, kind of feel them out, kind of guess where they're at and all that. And I'm, I'm this is more now non COVID talk, but since COVID, I will tell you, um, there is a very good problem that has developed among a number of smart brands. You know, I think with Rolex, even though though no one knows exactly the figures, you know, they can be, we know this, between 800,000 and 1.2 million, depending on how how good a year it is right? annually. Um, you know, Paddock and Jaeger, they're both around about 60,000 pieces a year right now. Um, Thierry Stern has said as much. The Richmond Group, they did their virtual SIHH this year and there was some great product launch and then Paddock and Rolex were like, yeah, we're not, we're not going to launch anything. And then lo and behold, of course, they quietly launched some stuff. Um, But there's been so much of a, uh, a fever to buy. I mean, people have been sitting home on their computers with plenty of time to just, you know, especially if they have split screens, you know, I know guys who are Wall Wall Street traders, and they got stocks on one side, and they're looking at, you know, Purist Pro on the other side, or Hodinky or something. And these guys, you know, that I, I always, I, I joke, I always tell my friends, I don't keep catalogs around the house. I used to get catalogs. Catalogs make you want to shop.
2: Right. That's right.
1: You know. So, yeah. but when you've got a screen up of Hodinky or something like that, or, or the Rolex website, or the Patek website, or whatever it might be, you start convincing yourself that you need these things.
2: Yeah. And, and you feel like, do you feel like, uh, some of your, more of your, uh, more of your customers are, uh, sort of coming in as connoisseur, asking those connoisseur questions, asking those more, you know, more to the, to the watch appreciator side than maybe, you know, like you said, for, for someone else, you know, buying, buying a watch for, for show for someone else.
1: It depends on the brand. I, I do believe in general, we're starting to see people develop a little more of a connoisseur's taste that it's something for them. It's something that gr- they gravitate towards. Um, you know, it speaks to them rather than it speaks to all my buddies. And since it's so hard to have, I got to have one. Yeah. You know, that's, that seems to be like, you know, the, now that Rolex changed the sub and all that, everyone's, you know, Oh yeah, I bought a Hulk and the next day it was worth three times as much. And, and my buddies all want to, say, you know, and, and, and so I'm, and that's not my taste. I mean, I have, I'll just say this upfront. I, I have a world of respect for Rolex as a brand and how Hans Wilsdorf built his brand. It's not my brand. You know, I, I, I prefer to be a little bit under the radar. I'd rather people look at my wrist and, and kind of wink and say like, you know, nice taste. And that's the end of it. You know? So, uh, I, 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 that's my, that's sort of my personality, I guess. Nice. Nice. Um, but I have tons of guys asking me for these pieces that are the super desirables, if you will. You know, you know, it used to be, I think, in the late 90s, it used to be that the average European would have five to 10 watches and the average American would have one to three watches. And the average Americans weren't very well educated. And it was more about whatever their friends said or maybe a mentor, uh, their boss, what somebody said. Europeans would come in. They were always asking for what we would consider the obscure brands. You know, um, yeah. And, and I think the Internet, particularly some of the online sites like Hodinkee and, and others, uh, time zone has become, I think, a little bit uh, almost too pedestrian, even though it's the largest site still. But it's become, you know, everyone goes there who's, who's sort of a novice. Mm. But I think, you know, I think brands, I, I think uh, websites like uh, the Purist, which used to be Purist, which is now Purist Pro or Watch Pro site, right? Used to be Purist Pro. I've always felt like they were more in-depth than most of the other sites. So I always that was always where I gravitate towards. And if you go to Purist Pro and you look for watch me, you'll find me. Um I tend to alert quite a bit on, on Jaeger and Paddock and those sites because I, I tend to like the handmaids. But but the Americans have been getting better educated. And so they're becoming a little more connoisseurs. And I think they get to a point where they sometimes they get to the point where they realize. Man, I've got five Rolexes and three Omegas and two Breitlings and what else is out there? And then they start really looking for them. And we're starting to see that more now.
0: Yeah, I suppose, I wonder if that goes back to sort of turn of the century where America was a powerhouse of watchmaking, but it was those middle brands, wasn't it? Like Hamilton and Elgin and all the others that ended up dying, dying the death, but they were very much the... You know, working man's watch at the right, time every man's watching yeah. every man's watch
1: yeah yeah i mean you know the american watch industry had a great history and um you know from Waltham, elgin all those and uh hamilton was was honestly probably the most creative all of all them because you look at their you look at their catalogs of all their case designs you know hamilton had this just yeah un- unrelenting they just were non-stop creativity um but you know they were, and it's funny now. You look back at the catalogs, and this watch, these watches were fifty bucks.
2: <laughs> right.
1: Um, I mean, I look at a 1968-69 catalog, and I see an advertisement like uh, I've got an old Life magazine with the Beatles in it uh, on the cover, and uh, in it you'll see watches uh, like LeCoultre and Company that were one hundred and fifty bucks. Yeah. Yeah. You know, hindsight being twenty twenty, I wish I could take a time warp. <laughs> time machine and go back and buy a few memo boxes and bring them back to the future. But, but yeah, things have changed so much in the production the dynamics and all that. Uh, I was having a conversation with Todd. Uh, I had read recently, uh, sorry, maybe six months ago about uh, Zenith, who I've always loved and Zenith, you know, right now, I think they make somewhere around 17 or 18 or 20,000 watches a year. But in 1970, they were making like 410,000 watches a year. I had no idea wow. of the volume that they had. Now they were $120, so they've got some of the same revenue in a much higher ticket and much lower production. You know, but it's interesting that the volume before the quartz crisis of what these brands were doing is just. Uh, there are exceptions, of course. paddock and the other brands that were much lower, AP that were much lower production. But yeah, I mean, there's, uh, you know, Hamilton, these brands, they did an every man to watch type of thing. And I think that now we're seeing people, I mean, I tell people, look, if you really know, if you need to know the time, you know, I've got the modern day pocket watch right here. My, you know, my, my iPhone is really, if I need accuracy, I've got that. And people are beginning to realize they want something a little more uh, special a little more unique, especially after they've gone through the run of like sort of the big three if you will
0: i was talking to somebody about the quartz crisis at work today and i tried to explain it by saying it was sort of like when the iphone came out in 2007 all the other phone makers completely underestimated big time underestimated that the iphone was going to be was going to dominate and then as soon as the iphone came out a lot of those brands like nokia was decimated and a lot of the other sort of brands fell away like alcatel and all of those that were made ericsson and all of them that was making phones they no longer exist really and I, I imagine that's how the quartz crisis was where they were kind of poo-pooing quartz for a while and then a few of them sort of dabbled with quartz like blackberry dabbled with touchscreen but nobody could really pull it off so but it's good to see that there's a lot of micro brands u.s micro brands coming back out now we interview a lot on the channel chris and i so there's a new excitement about u.s watchmaking
1: yeah and i think that the u.s watchmaking i mean um forgetting his name is michael is it cole out of pittsburgh forget his name now but he was doing like 2500 watches a year you know rgm is doing some really great stuff out of lancaster and getting some of his own movements and of course the goal is to have you know movements and cases i I think it'll be a long time before we have crystals made in the u.s i mean commodore pretty much dominates switzerland um, as the main crystal maker and that's a real specialty but but I think you know we'll we'll see more coming into the U.S. I think the micro niche brands that have started humbly. There's a company out of I think out of Brooklyn right now that you can kind of customize the strap and the case and all that. Uh, it's nothing special. Sometimes it's a quartz movement. Yeah. Even um, uh, what call it out of that's out of Detroit now.
0: Shinola. No.
1: Yeah, Shin- yeah, Shinola. They you know they're they've got this stamping of built in Detroit. But, you know, they're really using random movements that they're reassembling. Right. So, I mean, they've got to be able to get past that if they want to have more credibility. At the moment, it's fine. They're good looking cases, but it's a fashion brand.
0: Yeah, I-, I think that Chanel has actually done a bit of a damage to, U- to U.S. watchmaking because there's some great, like you said, there's some great watchmakers. You've got Cameron Weiss over on in L.A. that's building most of the right. own movements himself. I was chatting to a mm-hmm. microbrand, uh, Zao Baltimore, and he was saying, you, it was funny you mentioned about the crystals, he was saying that's hard, but apparently getting a hairspring made in the U.S. is, it, yeah. is, is impossible. There, it's impossible right
1: yeah. now. Yeah, yeah no, no one does assortments right now. I mean, you, you pretty much have to call Niverox NIVA, you know, uh, in order to get something uh, of an assortment in the U.S. right now. I think that could change, but you have to have somebody with the capital Who's willing to invest, you know, to start small, invest and become basically a monopoly for the U.S. the mm. way that Swatch Group has? Because, mm. I mean, who's going to make that kind of investment? And then you have to have the demand. I mean, if you're going to get an, if you're going to like a lot of brands have done, if you're just going to get an ETA movement that's a kit, then you're going to get their your, their assortment also. Why would you bother? Switching out a different assortment. Right. I mean, the money is the money is not in the assortment. The money is in the rotor and everything else. Yes, right, yeah. in the bridges. So, yeah. I unless somebody can go do an A to Z, which I can't see. I don't think there's any unless there's somebody who like you know is a billionaire <laughs> right. who's trying to figure out what should I do with my money. You know, you can convince somebody like that, but anybody who's really starting from scratch, I don't see how they can have the the money and the investment it's going to take. And the perseverance it's going to take to be able to shop that around and be able to say, Hey, I am the source because you know, those, those assortments have to be proven too. you know, very few brands that make their own. I mean, Jaeger makes their own, but they've been doing it for, you know, almost
2: 200 years. Yeah. And put on the watchmaker bench for, you know, and run in someone's wrist for, for 10 years and fixed and repaired. And we know what this part does and this. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. I mean, we talk about when we, when Patrick Yeager or AP or Vashon, one of these guys comes out with a, a new watch or a new movement, you know, they'll usually say things like, well, the failure rate is about one or 2%. And I didn't know exactly what that meant at first. And then they're saying, no, we expect one or 2% of our watches to come back. And they think that's a really great low number, unless you're one of the people who's one or
2: 2%. Right yeah yeah you
1: know.
0: one out of every hundred watches
2: and you know it's interesting that it feels like the internet could change that too because we see that with we, we see that with a lot of brands where the loudest the loudest commenter rises to the top in the internet and so you know yeah you you say like a you know only one percent i mean we i hear this with seiko you know where you know with their qc stuff and a lot of people are like well, yeah, a hundred people complained, but, you know, they made a million watches. So you're like, it's, right. that's not really bad, guys. Like, that's not a problem. But but at the same time, they're sort of fighting that that PR that, you know, that like, oh, oh, this isn't, this is supposed to just. And I can certainly, certainly imagine with that clientele, they're just like, you know, I paid what for this? This just needs to be absolutely, pr- you know, pristine, perfect work. So interesting.
1: Tagging along that, you know, you think about somebody who buys a 911. We joke. Sir, like Little and has this thing we offer on on some of our brands, okay, like Omega. Omega is a five-year guarantee, and we offer a free two-year extension. Now, in that two-year extension, we do the work, but I explain that the first five years, the brand, if there's something that happens under the first five years, don't call us, you call Omega, because the brand wants to find out, is this a user issue or a factory issue? If it's a factory Mm -hmm. issue, they want to fix it. Um, after that we can do it people are like well why would you why would i bother with an extended warranty i mean it's this i'm paying ten thousand or eight thousand dollars whatever for this aquaterra whatever this the seamaster is planet ocean and i'll ask them, well what kind of car do you drive well i you know i drive a 911 did you get an extended warranty yeah why because it's a mechanical device you know it's going to have problems yeah. there's always a chance that something happens in a mechanical device and and Interestingly, you know, after like 28 years in the business now, one of the things people ask me about, for example, how often should I service this watch? How often should I lubricate this watch? And I'll tell them, you know, I, I've got a couple of rules of thumb and, and my, my rules of thumb have changed over time as I've been around in the business longer. I used to be, well, these guys recommend three to five years. And then it was these guys recommend four to six years because lubricants got better. But as I've been around longer and heard more stories of people who sent them off religiously and got them back and they didn't run the same way, I've sort of fallen into, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, <laughs> unless, you, unless you take it in the water a lot. Right. You know, if you take it in the water a lot, you want to have it pressure tested, and that's a different ball of wax. But, you know, if you've got a watch that's really running well, you know, you can sell nine Navitimers, the same model, and they're going to come back at different times. Every piece because the way the person wears it. Or if how abusive he is, I mean, every piece is going to be different.
0: So I'm really interested to ask you about some of the brands because I know you're a, you're an expert on quite a few brands. One that I've not had much experience with, but it was funny that you mentioned Hamilton because Hamilton's so famous in films. But one of my favourite films recently was the John Wick franchise, and that's where the Carl F. Bukera watches really came into their own. I mean, the final fight scene of um, John Wick Three, where it's essentially a billboard of the watch playing behind is, is was amazing as a watch geek. But I know they own part owned to know, I think. But it's a brand that I don't know a lot about. Is it new? or
1: So that's a great question. Um, the short history, and it's actually an important history, is that Carl Friedrich Bucher basically decided to open a jewellery store in Lucerne, which was the vacation capital for Switzerland, in, in 1880. So it's 1888. In the 20th century, his sons... He was a jeweler, and he had just this little shop inside of this, just like one room inside of this hotel, right? You walk into the hotel, and on the left-hand side was the uh, registration, and on the right-hand side was his little jewelry shop that was probably, you know, 20 by 30 feet. In the 20th century, his sons became watchmakers, and they started to carry pocket watches. And Hans Wilsdorf, when he was getting ready to launch Hans Wilstorf in Davis— came to Carl F. workshop and said, hey, listen, I'm starting... He was in England at the time. He said, I'm starting this, this wristwatch brand. This brand will be dedicated to wristwatches, not pocket watches. And I'm wondering, basically, he said, in essence, could I get three feet of space? You know, mm. just on memo kind of thing. And he was like, yeah, sure, why not try it out, right? Well, they started selling, you know, largely to women first, because men were still doing pocket watches. Really... Right. Even after World War One, it was still 50-50. After World War II, it was pretty much dead, right? Because yeah. And really, honestly, the military is what, you know, catapulted the wristwatches. But so, you know, 1905, uh, they start carrying Hans Wolfsdorf and Davis. And 1908, you know, they, they came up with the name Rolex. And as, you, as I'm sure you know the story, your listeners know that, you know, Hans Wolfsdorf created the name because he wanted a name you pronounce the same in every language. You go to Germany, it's Rolex. You go to Italy, it's Rolex, whereas Timex would be T-Mex. You know, he wanted something that's pronounced the same in every language. And they started stamping some of the dials, and they started writing to some of their clients, could we take that watch back and put this name on it? And a lot of people said no, something like, but they started more and more getting them on. And by 1920 or 21 or something like that, all the dials said Rolex. You know, when I tell people the story now, they're like, oh, my gosh, you know, why wouldn't people? No one knew who they were. Maria Gleitz had not swum across the, the English Channel yet. You know, None of that was done yet. I mean, it took it took them a while to build it up. But Hans Wollstorff and Carl Friedrich Bucherer became super, super close friends. Hmm. Um, in 1919, Carl decided, you know what? This, this watch thing is really taking off. I think I'll add my own collection. And like a, peop- a lot of people, he had collections, you know, stamped with his name on it. And, and, you know, it wasn't until, you know, in-house didn't really become sexy until like the 80s and the 90s. Right. Most people didn't make their own watches, right? They, 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 they make, they got a design from one person and someone else built it. And they said, yeah, don't forget to put our name on it and send it to this address, you know, but they started doing their own watches in 1919 and they only sold them in their stores. However, the thing about it was that GIs from the U.S. and people who visited Switzerland, would go into this Bucher store, which Bucher then began to expand around Switzerland. They were still in Lucerne. And interestingly enough, that little shop where they had their one little room off of the registration for the hotel, they now own that whole building. That building is now the Bucher flagship store. And, uh, and a pretty amazing place. Um, I got to tour that with some uh, Ron, Ron Stahl who runs the brand has become a very good friend of mine. And uh, we went to Switzerland back in 09 and had this great tour. But anyway, uh, as they expanded around, you know, the Rolex and the Carl F. Bucher brands at that time, just said Bucher, the Bucher brand went with them. Um, And, and guys from the U S would come and they'd buy things and take them back to their families and say, Hey, I got you this thing, this watch that you can only get in Switzerland, you know, and they weren't expensive. I mean, they were like, it was like Tissot quality, right? Tissot, you can't fault them. I mean, it's, Good quality. If you don't want a lot of bragging rights, you know you're gonna get it. You're gonna get the same quality as well in a lot of other brands for a quarter of the price. And that's what it was like. But in 1999, the grandson Jorg decided he wanted to go upmarket. He said basically, you know, the quartz crisis is over. And, and interestingly enough, by the way, um, Booker had been involved in funding the Beta 21 project. Yeah. Along, along with Patek and Jaeger and a bunch of other brands. So they were, they were, they were fully invested in, in the Swiss industry. But he said, you know, I want to go international. Uh, I want to do two things. I want, to, I, want to, I want to, well, three things. I want to reposition the brand. I want to honor grandpa. Hence, instead of just saying Bucher, now you put Carl F. Bucher on the dial. And he said, number three, I don't want to make more than 30,000 watches in any given year. Now, keep in mind, they are the largest Rolex dealer in the world. And their mentality was, we understand volume. You know? So, they, uh, he, they started off in, I think, '02. they started getting some of the watches out in Switzerland. Then they were looking for uh, people to represent them in different regions around the world. Uh, Ron Stahl, who has his own company, Stahl Incorporated, which is one of the largest after sales companies in the U S after sales service companies kept on getting requests to repair some of these watches. And he said, you know, why don't you let me bring your brand to the U S and he's like, yeah, give us, give us a couple of years. We're, we're, we're getting ready to launch in the U S. And so he got the contract and, uh, our company got it in 03, which we were the third door at that time to get them to answer your question. The brand technically as a watch brand has been around since 1919, the company since 1888, but Let me tell you, as a jewelry store that has um, been very successful in Switzerland, they bought a competitor in Germany. I don't remember the name of the brand of the competitor, but they had 40 stores in Germany. In Europe, Bucher is the largest watch retailer. In 2017, in December, they bought the Tourneau franchise. And part of the reason they bought them was because, you know, Tourneau had already passed hands a couple of times. Um, and they were basically in chapter 11. And uh, Ron Stahl mentioned to your booker, hey, you know, I, I hear these guys are for sale. If you own Rolex and you have a jewelry store and you want to sell your jewelry store, Rolex AG will not allow you to sell to just anybody. They have to vet who's buying it. And since, yeah, and since they are, R- Booker is the number one Rolex dealer in the world.
2: It's like a pre lit, pre lit. Yeah.
1: Was, there. It, well, what happened was he, 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 you know, Jorg said, you know, let me reach out to my, my contacts at Rolex. And the story I heard was that he, he called whoever was running the show, the show at that point. It wasn't, it was before Dufour got there, I think, or right after Dufour got there. And uh, he said, you know, I hear that Tourneau's for sale. And they were like, yeah, 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 we were going to call you. You know, and they they told him, you know, this is how much it's going to it's going to be, whatever, forty million or fifty million, whatever it went for at the time. Um, and Jorg Bucher is one of Switzerland's fifty richest men, and he bought Tourno for cash.
2: <laughs> All right.
1: Wow. Yeah. So, and that and that and and Todd and I were having this conversation the other day. That is one of the reasons why the Karl F Bucher brand, Jorg's attitude has been. You know, we're going to be successful because success takes time and money. I don't have a lot of time, but like my friend Hans Wolfsorf, I have set up a trust because he doesn't have any heirs. I've set up a trust and I've got plenty of money. We will be successful over time. So, you know, they've, they've done great and they've really started releasing their own movements back in 08 with the A1000 peripheral rotor. Uh, and they've kind of focused on the peripheral rotors with it, which I think is kind of cool. Um, and then they've done some really great um, uh, proprietary movements, you know, where, where they, uh, their uh, travel tech, for example, you know, it was uh, a, a module that's mounted on an ETA 2892 because the 2892 has so, so much torque, it can move a lot of things. Um, but the module was something they developed um, with their own company. They bought, they bought THA, which was originally founded by FP Jorn. And they uh, have really done some great things. And they only do generic movements if it's like a time only piece, you know, at, the, at their lower end. Most of their stuff is going to be built with Dubois de, de Pra or THA. Um, and they really focus on specialized stuff. And so, I, you know, for me, people come to my store, and you know, if a guy wants a brighting or Omega or tag, I'm going to sell it to them. But if, but if they come to me and say, God, I've got five brightings already and two Omegas, what? What else should I look at? And I'll say, well, if you, you know, if you like that quality, let me show you something special.
2: It's uh, it's interesting. We had a we had a pod about uh, maybe about a couple of months ago. We were talking about Swiss brands that sort of came out of nowhere in the U.S. market. You know, the, the we, Swiss brands that sort of no one knew about, but yet have been around since, you know, 1840 or whatever. And uh, I think that's, you know, it's definitely one that's on the list. And from a just a marketing standpoint, it it sort of feels like oh you know these you know who who is this who is this brand where are they oh they 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 say they're around from you know from eighteen eighty eight you know et cetera and. I I think sometimes we get a lot of marketing that where you know you have this company that buys this old brand that used to make dive watches in the '60s and you know and they re re up it et cetera, uh. But you know that I mean here's a here's a great story of you know a brand that came from you know the beginnings of Rolex that you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't necessarily know about, um coming over in the states. Fascinating story.
1: Yeah, and you know people ask me you know I've they'll I'll mention the name oh I've never heard of it and I'll tell them you know listen quite frankly this is the company that basically made Rolex who they are now obviously Rolex's marketing is what made them who they are right but as a re- as a retailer they really did make them who they are I, I was uh, astounded when I went to visit their flagship store um, Todd and I were talking about this the other day they the, the gentleman who runs their store their flagship store told us mean a group that they get two rolex shipments per day wow wow and i asked him i said do you what do you What really what do you guys do you guys do like a hundred million dollars a year and he kind of leaned up on his toes and said if i did a hundred million dollars a year in the store i would get fired (laughs) wow so (laughs) the, the amount of revenue they do in rolex is insane um but here's the thing: buying before they were doing a lot of, not a lot, they were doing a fairly good amount of advertising in the U.S. Now that they own Torno, Torno is the advertising.
2: Right, you see, it's pop, it's popping up everywhere for sure. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I, they, I was, I, I was talking to somebody who we hired, who used to run a Torno store, and he told me that when a client comes into a Torno store, regardless of what brand they ask for, they are required to introduce the brand, the house brand. So it's not like they have to do it in print. Everybody who comes in is gonna start hearing about this brand. Now eventually they may get more print, of course, but everybody has to learn if they walk into a tourno, and tourneau is still the largest retailer in the US.
0: Yeah, I, I can attest to that. I've been I've been in a tourno and they've been talking to me about that brand. Yeah,
2: they did it. They did it at our local one, yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. One thing I'm I know that we're going to be we're going to be we're going to get comments about if we don't ask and I don't know how much you can say about it but certainly last year with this perceived sort of constriction of the supply of Rolex and it was believed that Rolex were constricting the supply it really hits home cuz we used to regularly go to Las Vegas cuz we can we can drive from here my wife and and a few of the neighbors and I started seeing like to know them having less and less Rolexes in the window. And then the Rolex dedicated ID, uh, dedicated AD in Caesar's Palace shut down completely. It was boarded up and everything. And I was like, wow, is what's going on here where even their own ADs are unable to get supplies? And we asked in a few, we asked in the, the one in the Bellagio and, and in Torneo. And Rolex could really just pump the supply back up and save a lot of these resellers that have been really struggling during the pandemic.
1: I don't know whether that's like a misconception on my heart part or... I can speak from an opinion. I'm not sure if I can speak, speak authoritatively. Okay, in the time that I've been in the business, when I got in the business, Rolex was a very different place. In the 80s, Rolex had lost control of their market. People were deep discounting the brand all over the place when I got in the business in 94 Rolex was through litigation, shutting down like 400 us retailers Wow, Uh, through litigation. And it made everyone else just sort of sit up like, I don't need to get into a litigation with Rolex. So people started backing off on their, you know, on their, on their discount, like, okay, you know, Rolex, you know, we say it's a free market economy in the United States. We can't tell you what to sell it for. And Rolex would, their attitude was like, oh, no, no, we're not telling you what to sell it for. Here's the retail and here's 10% off. You can sell it for anywhere you want between there from one to nine. You're fine. We're not telling you what to sell it for.
0: Like right. Apple, But everyone yeah. knew, everyone
1: knew, you know, if you go beyond that, unless you can prove that it's like a fan, friends and family, you know, you better watch out. I you get a phone call. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think now what's happened is they've, they've begun to realize, look, we can, we can reel in and make Almost all of our watches, super desirable now. We can basically get all of our retailers to go to a zero discount, at least in the short term, you know, because the, the brands, let's be honest, the brands would, the structure of the wholesale to retail, for the margins, the brands want you to sell at retail. In America, there's only a few pieces that can normally command that. But both Patek and Rolex now, we've seen more and more and more pieces that can command that so you know you can constrict the supply and then all of a sudden an air king is hard to get now you see these new yellow dials and these red dials that all of a sudden you know with these uh, oysters i mean people want these new dials and they're being smart and they're releasing a, a little bit at a time it's a law of economics and they're being smart about how much they're going to release and who's going to get them and they know because brands a lot of the brands that are well respected do secret shop their, their retailers. And, and they, they kind of know, they know who's not treating them properly. You know, Cartier about six or seven years ago, shut down a third of the U S retailers and then they jacked up their wholesale. They left their, they left the retail the same, but they jacked their wholesale. I mean, it used to be 10, 15 years ago. If you came for Cartier, you know, you got 20%, 25%, no problem. Now, four, five, seven, maybe 10, because the, the, if you try to sell at the same margin, you don't make any money anymore. Interesting. You know, and so the other, for example, the other Richmont brands have done that. You know, my CEO, when I, I love Jaeger LeCoultre very much and, and he'll, he'll say to me, yeah, but you don't understand there are worse margin brands and he's an accountant. He's all about the margin, but with Cartier and with Jaeger brands like that, there's very little margin in it. And so that's why they've, a lot of these brands have gone more to a boutique scheme because then they can justify, you know, the, the retail and not having a lot of discount, which, as you know, Omega is their plan is to go all boutique in the United States. Yeah, they haven't gotten there yet, but that's their plan.
0: So it's interesting you mentioned about the Snoopy because I thought that was going to be
1: boutique only.
0: Oh, but you own boutiques as well. We
1: do. We have we have at the moment four boutiques, but I will tell you they force a lot of retailers to open boutique style shopping shops but they don't treat them like boutiques. Yeah. For example, ah, we have brightling we have Breitling and Tag Heuer boutiques. And they treat us like boutiques. When a special limited boutique only piece comes out, we get it right away. Omega, we asked for pieces the 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 Snoopy that came out 3 years ago or was it 4 years ago now? Um that's doing 25 000 to 30,000 right now in the secondary, you know, it originally sold for like 7,200 bucks. We never even got it. And Omega realizes, I think they realized two years ago when they did that speedy Tuesday yep, and they sold yeah. 2000 limited edition pieces in 20 minutes. Yep. I think Omega suddenly was like, why in the world are we opening up these pieces to retailers? You know, uh, I, I spoke to a customer of mine who was offered one of the silver Snoopies and he was offered to, it from a boutique and they told him, the boutique manager told him that he was told every Omega owned boutique we'll get 55 Snoopys per year. It's not limited edition, but they're they're treating it like a Daytona. It's, you know, the, high, the highest value clients get it first. Yeah. And so, you know, it does leave us and other retailers in a little bit of a quandary because on one hand, you want to say, look, you know, we're, we're standing by you. If you give us this Snoopy, you know, we're not going to discount it. We understand it's a hard to get piece. Okay. But their attitude is, but if we sell it to you at wholesale, we make a certain amount. But if we sell it at retail, we make a lot of money. And in the pandemic, when things were shut down, I think my attitude is I think that they're thinking, why should we bother selling stuff to retailers when we can make all the money ourselves and make up for what we have lost over the last six months?
2: And then have to deal with all the drama of distribution. Have fun with that.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they can, track, they can track everything much more accurately. Who got what piece? You know, they can have their they can have their own boutiques fill out a reader card, mail it in. That this this gentleman, you know, like 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 Patrick registers every piece. They can register every single piece they're doing now of the hard to get pieces. Now at the moment, honestly, Omega doesn't have a lot of hard to get pieces. I I I was not that enamored by the latest James Bond piece. I didn't think it was all that. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. yeah, it did. I mean, the mesh bracelet doesn't do much for me in any brand because mesh braces to me don't have identity. It's not, you know, the Pilot bracelet in Breitling, it's got the angled link, you know, it's a Breitling. But the mesh bracelets don't do anything. And I thought that the James Bond on the NATO strap looked pretty cool and it was titanium. But honestly, I felt like the design was, well, let's see what else they come out with.
0: Yeah, it's amazing that um, they came out with that titanium case to great fanfare. But even Citizen does spectacular titanium cases it's i, I don't think that the and it was double the price of a normal seamaster and that the old radium was done way well heavy-handed i'm not sure what they were doing yeah. with that at all really it's a shame because it would have been a good looking watch if they just toned it down a little bit but the price was like spectacular
1: well yeah i, th- I think i think some of the brands i think that some of the brands they want to please the market but i think some of them rush to market Uh, and cut some corners. Like, I I think we can all agree that the first round, especially the plain dial of the AP code 1159 was just, it should have been flushed down the toilet. I mean, it just, they came to market with the white (laughs) dial and I was like, gorgeous case. What were they thinking on the dial? Except for the, except for the perpetual with the lapis dial. That was beautiful. Everything else. I just thought, man, you've got the most beautiful case I've ever seen. And it looks like the dial was like an afterthought.
2: Kind of staying on the same topic, where Omega controls, uh, you know, sort of the the marketing, the Rolex marketing and and sales, the retail pricing, things like that. Um, we've had several discussions about Brightling, and I and I think Breitling is getting better. But I'd like to hear maybe your sort of take from you know from from what we see. Uh, Brightling has a tendency to show up on gray market sellers. It's a it's a thirty, forty, you know, thirty-five plus percent off and it definitely questions I mean, I was looking at, you know, the super ocean and just and and going into an A D thinking like if I if I buy this gray market, I'd you know, I'm getting thirty percent off, twenty five percent off, something like that. So maybe speak to what they're doing to either change that or they're continuing like that.
1: Well, so, you know, you guys have been around long enough, like me. I-, I think the whole industry was shocked when Georges Kern, who was number three at the time at Richmond, resigned and suddenly showed up at Breitling. Mm. You know, I was like, he went where? What? You know? Mm. And, uh, uh, it was a sad story about why, uh, Schneider had, Teddy Schneider had to sell the company, which I won't get into right now, but it was, it was very sad why he had to sell it. But anyway, I think George's Kern is trying to, I don't want to say reinvent the brand because that's not really true. He's really looking at their history to try and bring back the brand to its former glory. If you will, I'm not sure if it really had a glory. Um, but I think that he's, he's looking at, he's looking at the old catalogs. And he has said this publicly. He has said everything we need has already been done. It's incredible history. Yeah. So he's, you know, he's he's focused on bringing this stuff back. But my my take on the brand right now, and I and I like brightly very much, and I've sold them for many many years. Again, this is you know very personal taste. I think the two tone forty four millimeter chronomat is one of the best two tone watches out there. You know, a 500 meter watch that's really good looking watch for if you like two tone, the, the pilot bracelet. I mean, it's a real, it's a good beater. And, and the new 01 movement, not new anymore, it's 12 years old now, but the 01 movement is very robust. The thing is that Georges Kern, after running IWC, he knew that if we're going to really grow this brand, there's one market we have not tapped, and that was China and China had saved in 2010 and 2011, China had saved Richmond and a whole bunch of people. Oh, yeah. And yeah. he knew Brightling had never been there. And so he said, man, we can keep our numbers in Europe and, and the U.S., but we need to expand into the Asian market. I think, you know, when they came out suddenly with these, when they redesigned the Colts and they made the, di- the dial super clean, right? There was no <laughs> right. more luck. Lo- didn't have any more engine turn on it, didn't have a lot of twenty-four hour writing. It was very yeah, clean. A lot of
0: scales. And I
1: kinda looked yeah, I kind of looked at it when it stroked my chin and said, I think I know exactly who you're targeting here. Because you know the Chinese don't like busy. They like clean. They like classic. They like, mm-hmm. you know, simple. And now they've come out, they've just launched, you know, the they've the new chronomats with the bullet bracelet again, and they brought these ladies' pieces up, and they're very clean dials again. And and they're and they're nice. Now from my history of selling the brand for 28 years. I do look at them and I think, you know, they're nice. They're clean. They are a little bit boring. Hmm. Like they've lost some before they had a little more in your face. Like this is who we are. This big orange dial this big yellow dial. You know, we're going to put this stuff out. We don't really care what people think. This is who we are. And now it seems that they've kind of backed off a little bit and said, okay, what can we do to, to be all things to all people? And, and in their recent marketing They've said, you know, we are an all-inclusive brand. What they're trying to say is we are like Rolex and Omega. We have something for everybody. And in the past, that was not their feeling at all. It was like, hey, this is who we are. And jump in the lake if you don't like it.
2: I feel like definitely, uh, maybe not so much with design. I think there's still, I mean, some of the, they're still doing orange stuff. But I think definitely from a a standpoint of uh, the options, like the Super Ocean 2 comes in three sizes, 14 colors, different strap. I mean, just like, it's like 80 options with like 65 part numbers. And you're like, uh, okay, so I just want a Super Ocean 2. Like, you know, so I feel from that standpoint, it's kind of like all for everyone, you know, one for everyone.
0: Yeah, they te- they've toned down the Ani Digis as well, haven't they? I mean, I'm, I'm partial to a Breitling Ani Digi. I've, I've got a Breitling B1 that I absolutely adore. And I've noticed they've completely oh, yeah. t- completely toned them down. They've got the two Emergencies and then the Avenger, is it? But the, mm-hmm. the rest of those is toned down and the sizes are getting more reasonable. I really like the Super Ocean, the way it's... um, But it's interesting what you said. It's definitely a lot a cleaner dial with the, the oversized numbers. And I've definitely got my eye on one of those for sure.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think that, so before he took over, uh, I went to Breitling in 2010, um, and they had released the 01, and they were, getting, they were getting ready to put it into Navitimers and Chronomats and all that, and, and I knew because, you know, the, every year they would release the, um, the chronometer figures, right, the COSC, mm-hmm. and so every year we knew how many watches Breitling made. Basically. Right. Okay. They did 156 last year. Okay. They did 120 this year. And when we were there, I said to them, I said, you know, I know that you guys made, but you know, about at this time, about 150,000 watches last year, but what's your goal? Now this is 2010 or 2011. And at that time, Teddy Schneider said our goal is 900. And I was like, Whoa, really? So I, I realized that what they were trying to do is they were chasing Rolex and they wouldn't say Omega, but their pricing was like Omega. Mm. Their, 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 their ambition was Rolex, you know? I see. And yeah. I, you know what I'm saying? So they're, I think like Omega, they, and they've become, I think, in many respects, much more like Omega. Like they've become cleaner. Right. Yes, you have a bunch of different sizes, but it's cleaner. It's not fussy. Um, the rider tabs don't pull your shirts anymore. They're, you know, they're lower profile and they're part of the bezel now. Um, the super oceans, which I I think the super ocean heritage, rubber strap, black dial with the rose gold or the, or the Beverly Hills one with the blue, blue strap, blue dial and the rose. I think it's really good looking piece. Very, very clean before they were very much a European and kind of an American European brand, you know, jet fighters, top gun, you know, cool. Right. And they, they're, 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 they haven't let go of that, but they've basically said, kind of like the moon watch like we'll never we'll never let go of this we'll keep the emergency you know we'll keep we'll keep the aerospace we'll keep the 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 replacement to the b1 now we'll keep these but that'll be less and less and less and less and we're going to introduce more and more this this general public a type of watch that everyone's going to like like they would a date just yes
2: right yeah yeah you can you can always get an timer, but here's what we have for your 200 meter dive, you know, <laughs> watch that sport watch.
1: I think you'll eventually have guys who are like the purest, and they'll be like the Navitimer guys. And then everybody else will, ha- which, and they'll be like the guys who are like the no date sub guys. And then you'll have <laughs> the other guys who are like, yeah, you know, a crown for every achievement. And I bought another tournament. Right. You know, this time it's, <laughs> this time it's steel.
2: So, um, down in the U S Virgin islands, you have no sales tax. You have, uh, d- so duty is free for
1: $1,600. That's
2: cumulative
1: upon party members.
2: Okay. Uh, so here's here's my take. Uh, my in-laws live in Oregon. And uh, it's tax-free there. And I'm sure there's an Omega AD. But uh, if I go up there and I buy, say, an X-33 Skywalker, for my you know fun space watch, even though I have no sales tax i 'm still in Oregon with my in-laws so sell us on going to the u s virgin islands <laughs> and, uh, and making a special trip uh, to your store
1: i think that's a, I think that's a fair question and and i 'll preface it with this my dad salesman that he was over the road salesman, right his, his territory was the northeast quadrant of the u s He used to always tell me, listen, when everything's said and done they don't have to buy from you. They can buy from anybody. They buy from you because they like you. Right. Right. That's the bottom is trust and all that relationship, you know, but here's what I'll tell people. First off, people will ask me silly questions like, is this the best deal I'm going to find everywhere, anywhere? And I tell them, look, you can always find somebody somewhere who can give you a better deal. Right. And if you're the guy who your brother-in-law gets you a watch at cost, and then you drive down the road proud as can be and see a store going out of business and it's 10 cents on the dial and you kick yourself, you are not my customer, right? That's, that's not, the, yeah, you're not the person I'm looking for. <laughs> but some of the advantages we have, let's take Omega. They are going towards all boutique. They're not there yet. Um, in the US though, they do have a tighter hold on more and more retailers now. In the Caribbean, they have a standard caribbean duty-free price of 15 percent off the US, u.s no tax which for me coming from new york where i was raised that would be like about 22 to 23 percent off all okay right. um when everything's said and done when it's all signed for i tell people this you're always going to get a good price you're always going to get an extended warranty on top of that which is just nice little peace of mind we we you are always going to have the option with us of uh, doing things like using our house account you know the x thirty three i I don't remember the retail right now, but if it's if it's over thirty five hundred bucks, which is pretty much all omega, you've got eighteen months there's zero interest if it's over six grand, it's two years, there's zero interest so when you put zero interest plus a duty free price plus no tax plus a really pretty island, yeah <laughs> yeah. St. Thomas is a beautiful place and I, I, uh, I won't share my screen with you right now, but you know, I look out on 22 islands and uh, it's a pretty magical place. So when you, when you put all those things together, you go, you know, when everything's said and done and signed for nine times out of 10, you get it for less here. Not always but you always have but you almost always have a great experience. Here.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's 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 great. That's great. I mean, just looking at the amount of brands that you guys carry, I mean, it's definitely uh, and I think I think Todd's hooked on the uh the destination for sure.
1: <laughs> yeah, he can he can tell you he can tell you more about it after he he can do his review of our Airbnb and then he can tell you about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's been really
0: interesting. A final question, I think, before we conclude here. Knowing everything you know about all the brands, what what do you personally gravitate to? Is it based on, does it change as you get to know more brands or do you have your sort of core manufacturers that you think offer great value for money or that you personally enjoy?
1: For me personally, it depends on a couple of factors. It depends on the type of product I'm looking for, like, is it going to be a sporty water type of watch, right? That I can wear everywhere and not have to worry about it. Um, I tend to lean towards classic. You know, I think as I've gotten a little bit older, I, I tend to look for like khakis, light blue button down, Navy blazer goes everywhere. And in watches, it's the same thing. It's not that it's milk toast. It's something that'll test, stand the test of time. Like, I think Jaeger LeCoultre's new Master Calendar, which is just a slight twist on an old design, was really quite ingenious. You know, the, the date jumps from the 15th to the 16th and, and does not block the moon phase. And it does it in a, about a five-second jump, which was pretty impressive because usually calendar watches like that take about an hour to go through each of the functions. But the design is classic, and I think that a watch like that in 50 years is still going to look awesome. I tend to stay away from things that I think are dated. Like I'm not a big fan of like all black watches. I, I, I re, I stay away from PVD, like the plague. <laughs> um, yeah. you know, uh, even though, you know, people will talk about the tag dark Lord and things like that. I just think that a lot of stuff like that looks a bit dated. And I think that, you know, in 20 years, I'll think that was really cool back then, but, you know, I've kind of moved on. So I look for the things that I think are going to have staying power. A good example would be like, and this is personal taste. I wouldn't buy the Planet Ocean with the orange segment because I think orange has got a pretty short shelf life. But the all black, all sure, I'd buy that all the way. It's got a long shelf life. And so I look for me, things like that or things that are going to be unique, but that will that will stand the test of time. You know, I think the silver Snoopy is a very, very cool watch, you know, not that you, I mean, you're going to have to take off the watch every time you want to show somebody the spinning earth and, and the, and the lunar capsule going around the back of the watch. But, but no one's ever done anything like this. And it's going to be like, it's going to be like the Jimi Hendrix of watches. It's the first time someone's done a a regular plain manual wine round watch that had something really cool like that on the back. You know, it's, it's not a reverse, so it's not Paddock's, you know, Grand Chime, Master Chime. I mean, it's something that's really cool with something on the back. And it, of course, makes you go, hmm, what else could you do like that, right? So I think it's going to pave the way, and I think it's going to stand the test of time. And I think the blue and the white are good, constant colors. I stay away from greens, personally. Uh, I hope no one shoots me for this. Like, I love Paddock's 5168G001, the, the Aquanaut with the blue, on, blue strap, blue dial. I detest the green one. I think the green one's hideous. <laughs> yeah. And I've had them on my wrist. And I said, even if you gave this to me, I probably wouldn't wear it. Cause I just, it's too military. It's too khaki. It's just not me, you know, but that's the beauty of watches. To me, the beauty of watches is when people ask me what I do, I tell them I sell horological artwork and is in the eye of the beholder, you know, and people come to me and everyone's taste is a little bit different. And so I can tell people what I like and why I like it. But at the end of the day, you're going to gravitate towards what appeals to your eye. For me, it's the stuff that's classic, that's timeless that I'm going to I think I'm still going to like 30 years down the road. You know, so that's that's me.
0: Dean, thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode. That was absolutely fascinating
1: yeah thanks for having me guys
0: as always guys we really appreciate you listening if you've got any questions to ask head on over to the casual watch talk facebook group as always we appreciate you listening and we'll see you next time on casual watch talk thanks guys bye